On today's episode of Public Interest Podcast, former Virginia Governor George Allen peppers his language with sports analogies. Here's an excerpt where he describes his stance on energy policy. We're number one in the world when it comes to energy resources. It's a blessing. It's not a curse. And fortunately, now we're starting to unleash our energy resources. What we had been doing as a government is like punning on third down on energy policy. Whether it was coal or oil or natural gas, the government's policies were, were really to keep it in the ground. Stay tuned for more from Governor George Allen on topics as varied as being tough on crime, investing in mass infrastructure, introducing standardized testing as a measurement of public education, and his interest in uh, his the four F's as his lifelong philosophy, family, faith, freedom, and football. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We are here today with George Allen, former governor of Virginia, a Republican who was in office from 1994 to 1998, former U.S. senator, a former congressman from District 7 in Virginia from 91 to 93, and a former Virginia state delegate uh, representing the 58th district from 1983 to 1991. George, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. <laughs> Good to be with you. And the best part of that delegate uh, Serving as delegate, I had Thomas Jefferson's seat yeah. in the House of Delegates. Now, I'd like to ask you, uh, let's start right there. Um, so you had Thomas Jefferson's seat, um, and uh, it actually wasn't your first attempt at running for the House of Delegates. That's true. I, I ran in 1979 and lost. And then, uh, so... Uh, but I learned a lot from that. You learned a lot. And one of the things was no wingtips, and instead you always have to wear your cowboy boots. Oh, you've done some research. <laughs> yeah, they made me... Uh, I, I ended up with a knee injury after the alumni football game, mm-hmm. and I ended up with flea bitis after that, and this, that, and the other. That was a, a miserable year, 1979. At any rate, I ran, I lost. But in the midst of it, all these experts said, well, you got to get rid of those big shiny belt buckles and, and boots. You got to get a regular belt and, and wing tips or, you know, shoes, the yeah. most top of shoes. And uh, the last time I wore them was election night that year, 1979. And uh, I gave them to some uh, younger yeah. down the road <laughs> with it. And the, the best advice I ever got was from a, a delegate from Culpeper named George Beard. Who at the Green County Fair, he had a big chaw tobacco. And I said, oh, you're chewing tobacco here. He says, yeah, you got to be yourself. And so the next time I ran, this hard enough to run and go door to door in wingtips. Yeah. Uh, might as well be comfortable in my own boots and shoes. And then the, the, the same issue actually came up when I ran for governor. 
people are telling me, you cannot be wearing these boots. You know, they're, they're Main Street, Richmond people. They don't like, you know, they just are not accustomed to people mm -hmm. wearing boots. And so I said, I've already gone through this before. I'm wearing boots. And um, I'll have it to my feet. I'll put what I want on. So you got to be yourself. Uh, you've stuck by that adage. And in fact... It gets you in trouble every now and then. <laughs> because people aren't accustomed to, to say Western ways or sports as they are in the world of politics that's a little bit more genteel. Now, you um, have uh, you subscribe to the t four Fs as the tenets of your campaign in your life, the family, faith, freedom, and football. So in being yourself, would you elaborate for my listeners, what does that mean? What are those four? How did you come to develop those four Fs, and how have you lived your life accordingly? Well, Jordan, that's a great way of asking the question. I'll say, you know, I grew up with four Fs important on our family, faith, freedom, family, and football, not mm -hmm. necessarily in that order. Mm -hmm. And uh, the foot, football's what kept our family together. Uh, that's what unified us. That was my experiences growing up in life. Faith was important and uh, in, in grace and going to Vespers before uh, Redskins games. They'd have great meals, pregame meals. And my father says, you're not going to go to this pregame meal and get steaks unless you go to Vespers and listen to Tom Skinner, who was the team chaplain. And uh, I realized later in years, he's the best preacher I've ever heard. And in fact, officiated my father's funeral and, and did the invocation uh, at, and benediction at my inauguration as governor. He's, he's since passed away. He was a former uh, gang leader and all this up, up north somewhere. But he's just a great preacher uh, with it. Freedom, I learned that mostly from my mother, who was uh, from Tunisia, mm -hmm. my grandfather, Felix. My middle name's Felix after him. Mm -hmm. Was incarcerated by the Nazis in World War II. But football was everything. Uh, in that, and here's what you learn from football. You get knocked down, you get back up. You, you, you have teamwork, you're prepared. Uh, There's no cheating. You have the same rules for yeah. everybody. Well, yeah, the same rules, level playing field. And best of all, and you know, some of this you understand and appreciate later in life, but the, the teams I played on and the, and the teams my father coached that I grew up with, mm -hmm. uh, the players were from all over the country, different races, religions, ethnicities. None of that mattered. All that matters, could you help the team win? Could you block or tackle, punt, kick? And, and it's a meritocracy. And that's what we should aspire to in our society where everyone, regardless of their background, has that equal opportunity to compete and succeed based upon their own hard work and and effort and ingenuity. Now you're an author. You recently came out with the book, What Washington Can Learn from the World of Sports, where you expound upon the virtues of sport, as you were just saying. What's the difference between Washington and the football field? Huh, big difference. You know, with the government in Washington, you know, instead of uh, uh, in the way it should be in the world of sports, is, is the government has a level playing field. You want to be more competitive as a country. Mm -hmm. Actually, the recent tax cuts on, on businesses that are incorporated is a good example of rather than the worst in the world mm -hmm. and, and, and highest in the world on taxes, we're now better than average. We're number one in the world when it comes to energy resources. It's a blessing. It's not a curse. And fortunately, now we're starting to unleash our energy resources. What we had been doing as a government is like punning on third down on energy policy. Uh, Would you know, explain about what you mean by that? Well, they, 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 whether it was coal or oil or natural gas, the government's policies 
we're, we're really to keep it in the ground when, when it's, it means jobs, it means revenues, it means competitiveness for manufacturers that use a lot of, say, natural gas or need affordable electricity. So punting on the third down basically means you should use the natural resources and once you deplete them, then you punt on the fourth or hopefully get that first Well, down. you don't have to punt it, yeah, but if you deplete them. <laughs> uh, the reality is we're finding more and more of it because of innovative ideas of horizontal and directional drilling and hydraulic fracking and we're we're number one in the world when it comes to coal. We're now going to just in a few years be the number one producer of oil. Mm -hmm. We're we're exporting oil now in the U.S. We're exporting natural gas. Just ten years ago, we thought we we're running out of natural gas. Now we're starting to to export it. Uh, in Washington, so often they'd say, you know, gosh, look. Uh, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers have all these Super Bowl trophies, but the poor Detroit Lions, they've never won a Super Bowl trophy. Let's give them one. Well, in the world of sports, no, you have to earn it. <laughs> you have to earn it. Yeah. Everyone doesn't finish the, a, a race holding hands at the finish line. Somebody wins, somebody doesn't. And so you don't want Washington uh, picking winners or losers. Just like in sports, no one goes to a sporting event to watch the officials officiate. You don't want to see the zebras. You want to see the... The players and their strategies determine who wins. And too often in Washington, uh, you have the umpires uh, deciding the game rather than the free enterprise system and, and people, free people, deciding who has the best product or best service rather than the government favoring one over another. Now, on the topic of football, it does fall into two of your Fs, family and football. Your sister is an NFL Network uh, journalist. Uh, your brother is a general manager of the Redskins. Your father is a famous NFL football coach uh, for the Rams and the Redskins. Uh, and, and of course, uh, so you said football has played a large part in your life. Now, your father... Uh, died in 1990, which was just before you were elected to Congress, but he had seen you elected to public office as a state delegate. Would you speak about, I guess, the, how, what, what your relationship was and how it evolved, I guess what his perspective uh, was that you didn't follow the family path in football, but instead you went into <laughs> politics? <laughs> Great question, Jordan. People will ask me, why did you not follow into football? My father never had a losing season, but he would be getting fired all the time. Uh -huh. And we, you know, moved around the country and he was a scout as well as a coach for the Bears. And so Christmas time, we'd always be somewhere in the South for bowl games and knew where the best fireworks were, Nick and Jack's Landing and near Chattanooga and all that. But the, um, he was happy that I got a law degree, so they can never take that away from you. My father loved the competition of, mm -hmm. of, of politics. What did my, it mean to him when you first won? Uh, Especially having seen you lost only a few years yeah, prior. Yeah, well, um, and, I'll, and it's actually football's the reason I ever got involved in politics anyway, which I'll, I'll get to. But when I won that first election, we're waiting. I was in Charlottesville, had an old building. Um, we're listening to a radio station as the election results come in and it's just taking forever and it's very close and the announcers are saying, yeah, Alan's ahead, but if these precincts vote the way they normally vote, you know, he'll lose. 25 so, votes, right? Yeah, that's after the recount. It was 18 votes on election night. And so, and my father's asking, well, did you go to these precincts that we're waiting for? They're paper ballot precincts, they're mm -hmm. so small. So well, I went to Montebello once why do you only go there once? I said, there's only 45 people there. Dad, it's, a, it's a trout hatchery. And what about Gladstone? At any rate, the results finally come in. Mm -hmm. And I do better than Republicans normally do in these precincts. And I win. 
And my father said, gosh, this is as great as beating Dallas. <laughs> for my father, that is really something. But the whole reason I got in politics actually was we moved out to California when my father became head coach of the Rams uh -huh. in 1966. And Ronald Reagan was elected governor in 1966. And Reagan would come to the Rams practices. Huh. And he'd be there shoulder to shoulder with my father, you know, analyzing the players and the strategies and plays. And so growing up in a football family, I thought, well, here's a politician who knows what's important. That's football. Like and because most of them, you know, they get 50 yard line seats and this, that and the other. So I followed what he did as governor, liked it. We moved to Virginia. I went to UVA. My father came to the Redskins. And Reagan, while I was at the University of Virginia, asked me to head up Young Virginians for Reagan. Mm -hmm. And I, I told him, I said, I know nothing about organized politics. I wasn't in the college Republicans. I had no desire to be with them. I liked debating and arguing. And I said, I tell people how much, uh, how good a job you did as governor. I think you have the right ideas for our country. And, and governor then, Governor Reagan said, well, just keep doing that. And so we were the rebels in 1976 against Gerald Ford. We won Virginia, but lost the nomination. But that's what got me involved in organized politics. And years later, uh, some of those same Reagan supporters encouraged me and persuaded me to run for office. Now, there are a few losses in addition to that first one. You did lose U.S. Senate in 2006 and 2012. The reason I bring that up is because you mentioned your father got fired but never lost. So I'd like to ask, and then you mentioned earlier as well, you got to be yourself, right? I mean, maybe you wear cowboy boots, you live in a log cabin home. So I guess the question is, why did he get fired? And, and I guess I'm thinking there's a big personality there. Do you rub, I mean, what is it, what's the cost of being yourself? And, and how does that manifest, manifest itself in the electoral uh, landscape? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Uh, you still want to be yourself. At, at, you know, when it, my my uh, uh, thermometer, barometer, whatever you want to call it, measurement, is you sleep well at night. Mm -hmm. um, and if you stick to your principles, stick to your promises, you're not being a phony. Uh, and, it's, and you have a respect for the will of the people. And mm -hmm. the will of the people will change from uh, season to season. And you can get end up with prevailing winds where people want to send a message. And in fact, I was just doing an analysis of recent trends in Virginia. And uh, it's, it's tougher for common sense conservatives these days. So I, my, father, my father never lost. He did do things his own way. Uh, and I liked and I was going to stick to those, those principles. Sometimes... Uh, the approaches and the jocularity, let's say, of, of sports isn't, isn't uh, uh, appreciated. You get in trouble in the world of politics. And there's, there's times I've, uh, gosh, I was ending, a, I'm not going to repeat it, but I was ending a speech. Yeah. I said, you got to get people fired up here. I was in a locker room before this speech at a convention. And I said, I know, what would my father say to get the team all fired up? Uh -huh. So my wife, Jay Timmons, my chief of staff, said, don't say that. I said, well, I'll say figuratively. Oh, no. Well, anyway, I did it. it was it, I should not have done it because it was fine for the audience right there. They all got a kick out of it. Mm -hmm. But 
but you're your governor, you just can't uh, use some of these sports exhortations that don't uh, translate well. Yeah, don't. Yeah, in the world of of politics, but you you learn from those. You respect the the will of the people, and whether you win or lose, I think it's important to be uh, respectful of the people. And and uh, for losing, I take responsibility for it. Don't blame others. And you know there are those years that are good years to run, and some that are not. I remember after the twenty twelve election. Uh, the, the next federal election was 2014. All these said, gosh, if you're running this year, you yeah. have it made. I said, yeah. Well, so on that enough. topic of national trends, right, you were swept into governor from just being a first-term congressman in 1994 with Newt Gingrich's contract in America, a Republican sweep, a backlash against Bill Clinton. Uh, and then, and, and, and to that, some extent, I'd like to ask you, to what extent was your victory attributable to those forces outside of your control? And to what extent, similarly, in 2012 with Obama, uh, was your loss attributable to the popularity of the National Democratic Party? And in that sense, to what extent is the victory or defeat of a particular candidate even representative at all with, by that candidate? Yeah, I think, I think what's happened more recently, Jordan, is elections Obviously, federal elections are going to be affected by federal issues. Mm -hmm. In the a governor's race, though, although that's it's, it's diminishing, Virginia's governor's races are in odd-numbered years. It was it was it was 1993. Mm -hmm. So this was before Gingrich and and the Republicans took over. So they looked at our Virginia governor's race, and and Rudy Giuliani got elected that year, and Christy Todd Whitman got elected governor of New Jersey, and they're saying, "Oh gosh, are these are these uh, precursors to what might happen?" So, but the the reason Virginia has the elections in, in odd numbered years was that they didn't want Virginia being caught up with federal or national issues, focused on you know want people focused on the issues that matter to Virginians. That election in 1993 is a heck of a comeback. I mean, we were we were just, gosh, I started off 31% behind against Mary Sue Terry, who was, already, was her second term as and attorney general. you finished general. like 20 points above her. Yeah, 18. How did you figure, how did that it, happen? It was just, it, it caught fire our ideas of truth and sentencing rather than releasing felons early. Uh, work, work fair or requiring able-bodied, able-minded people to work in exchange for their benefits. I said I wanted the world to know Virginia was open for business. We wanted, we not, we didn't just criticize what was going on. We offered positive, constructive alternatives. For example, high academic standards and accountability in schools, freezing college tuition that had been skyrocketing. And at the end of my term, there were over 300,000 net new jobs created, still a record. We put in high academic standards. We uh, got the welfare reform law done two years before the federal government did. We had to get a waiver. Uh, you referred and, to that as a hand up, not a hand out. Right. And right. you were trying to uh, employment, not welfare. When you, yeah, welfare was permanent. rather than dependence. Right. Same sort of thing. And, and identify the father of the children, so at least he's 
financially responsible for the children or the mother would get zero. That was an innovative program. Right. You had changed the incentives for a two-parent household. So you had the, the mother had to identify and help locate the father in order to receive the TANF benefits. Correct. So Good for you, George. <laughs> so those, so, and, and then you have a 98% uh, success rate in Virginia, which is among the highest in it's the nation, highest, yeah. of actually identifying both right. parents and getting that uh, the child support. From the father. Correct, George. How did you come up with that idea? Well, we wanted to promote the work ethic. We wanted to promote families. We wanted to promote personal responsibility. And so one of those ways of getting after the father was to identify who the father was. And if you talk to the local social, social service folks, they said, oh gosh, all of a sudden they remembered his name. Here's what kind of car he drives. Here's his address. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then on top of all that, identifying the father, if, if, if they didn't pay, we had all sorts of uh, ways of uh, taking away their hunting license or their suspending their driver's licenses and all that. And also told mothers, you know, if you have another child while on welfare, you're not going to get any benefit increase. And so we, there were lawsuits against us on uh -huh. this, but we prevailed and the welfare rolls dropped by well over 50%. But best of all, and it saved hundreds of millions of dollars, but best of all, there's people, tens of thousands who are leading independent, self-reliant lives. And in more cases with the family together and for children, it used to be that unwed minor daughters, if they got pregnant and had a child, they'd move out of home, drop out of school. And we said, no, you're gonna stay in a, at least a home environment and you have to stay in school uh, to get it because education, as well as a family, are the two best predictors of success in life. I'd like to drop us back a few centuries to the late 18th century when President Thomas Jefferson envisioned a country, well, president in the early 19th century, but a constitutional framer and founding father in the late 18th century, Thomas Jefferson envisioned a country of human farmers. Obviously, you mentioned him uh, in a very positive frame, potentially inheriting his philosophy as well as his delegate seat uh, in Virginia. I'd like to ask you how you envision yourself as having inherited his philosophy. What does it mean to have gone to UVA, the school that he started, and to have held the seat that he once held, especially within the context and of he your... Was, and he was governor of Virginia, too. So, And especially within the context, not only of your political, but, but of the actual policies that you enacted in office. They're, they're similar. Uh, the two people who I admire the most philosophically is Thomas Jefferson and Ronald Reagan. And I think Ronald Reagan took those foundational principles of, of Jefferson and Washington uh, and implement them in the modern era. Mm -hmm. uh, now that we have electricity and the communications rather than horseback and, um, and letters. But Je Jefferson, in his 1801 inaugural address, defined the sum of good government as a wise and frugal government, which shall restrain men from injuring one another, but otherwise leave them free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and the government should not take from the mouths of labor the bread they have earned. I still think... Well, is that a third grade assignment to memorize that thing? I, I, just, I just think it is still the best, and it still applies today. Yeah. The point is you trust free people and free enterprise. Unless you're harming someone else, leave people alone. I hate limits. I deplore restrictions. I really dis dislike nanny government. And, and I just like, I like people to be free. Uh, and, and the government has certain roles. And at the state level, it's education and law enforcement. At the national level, mm -hmm. 
It is national defense and external matters. And you want the states to be a large enterprise zone without restrictions on, on commerce. So you mentioned uh, staying basically a laissez-faire approach when possible. Right. And I'd like to juxtapose that to your support for standardized tests. You did just mention education as a role in the mm -hmm. state of Virginia. Mm -hmm. Now, you supported the increase of standardized tests as a means of measuring right. uh, standards of learning. So saying, where's our baseline? Where's our intervention? And then what exactly did that achieve for us? Uh, you introduced a report card to grade schools, and you threatened those schools with state takeover if they were failing. They figured that if the students were failing, then by golly, the, the school could fail too and we could do better for them. Could you uh, explain how that philosophy is in line with the Jeffersonian philosophy? It's perfect, uh, and especially a sports analogy. Do you go watch a basketball game and guess what the score is? No, there's a scoreboard. Mm -hmm. What gets measured gets better. So we put in high academic standards in reading, writing, math, science, economics and social studies. And everyone said, gosh, these are great standards, uh, high academic standards, other states emulated them. I said, well, now we have to measure mm -hmm. because unless you have a test, these standards will be mere suggestions. And I think parents and taxpayers, students, as well as teachers ought to know if students are learning these subjects. Don't just socially promote them from grade to grade. Mm -hmm. If, if a child's doing well, great, we know that. And if, he's, if he or she is not, then they're going to need more attention uh, for it. And so rather than just measure what, what we care about education, about how much money are you spending, which is important, but let's see how stu students are doing. And having a school performance report card will let people know how's this school doing. They all could say, oh, this is just a great school. How many schools shut down as a result of that? We didn't shut any schools down. They were, they were put on probation, uh -huh. and um, the view was not to have the state. I, my, my view was I don't want the state to have to take over any school district. That would be but antithetical to your philosophy. Exactly, because education is a state and local shared responsibility. Right. And you have to have uniform standards across the states. You're not going to say, well, 2 plus 2 equals 4 in, in uh, Southwest Virginia, but it can equal five in Fairfax. I mean, it's two plus two is four, no matter where you are in the did, state. Did you see the schools in Virginia improve? Yeah, they did because, because there was that scrutiny. And, and the parents, what you'd want to see is the school boards and the people in those counties or cities saying, look, we got to change. We just can't keep doing things the same way. And in fact, after I was governor, I joined an organization called Communities and Schools, where they take uh, try to help out students from, from, let's say, disadvantaged backgrounds who need added help. And, um, and so there's some who need more help. The kids that are uh, you know, going to schools in, in Great Falls and McLean mm. aren't the same as those that are in Petersburg or in the coal fields. And so you want to, you want to help out, but you have to measure it. It's, it's just like any other thing that uh, you, you could say, gosh, we had a bad year. Mm -hmm. And, and you can have a bad year, but it's, if it's year after year after year, those children should not be consigned to losing schools. And with that measurement, the school boards and the people in communities will change the leadership and, and try to improve them. I do want to just mention one uh, issue where uh, you had uh, an instance of deregulation and, and ask you about uh, when you eliminated a water and toxic 
toxin monitoring program on uh, evidence was uh, in a safe, if I recall, uh, or at least was withheld from the public, and eventually PCBs and mercury was found in a river. My question for you is, since you were very interested in being tough on crime and promoting public safety, but also, of course, promoting businesses and being uh, deregulating uh, industries so that they can thrive, deregulation may lead to more profits, but of course, it it polluted the water system. How do you reconcile, or do you have any regrets, or was that the right move to eliminate those those uh, regulations? How, how do you reconcile your desire to support public safety, but also to deregulate and support business, which led to uh, heavy metals in water? I'm not sure what that specific case is you're talking about, but one of the things I am proud of is the first order I signed when I was after I got sworn in, and that is we're going to review every regulation in Virginia, mm -hmm. determine its purpose. Blue Ribbon Strike Force? You got it, Jordan. Blue Ribbon <laughs> Strike Force. And uh, after, after four years and systematic review of every regulation mm -hmm. to determine its purpose, and if it's a worthwhile purpose, is there a better, less burdensome way of achieving it and duplication, all that. Uh, I think it was about 71% of the regulations in Virginia were either amended or eliminated. And I think that ought to be done every 10 years because I guess, you know, 10 years ago, people didn't have iPads. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there's better ways of, of, of doing regulations. The goal is to have clean air, clean land, safe working conditions. And uh, I don't know what that specific case is and what the legal uh, wrangling was on it. Mm -hmm. But so many of the things that we did improved the, the air quality mm -hmm. in Virginia. Uh, they wanted us to have government-run uh, emissions systems in Northern Virginia mm -hmm. and force millions of cars into just a few government centers to be tested for emissions. And then if it failed, they'd have to go get it fixed somewhere and then get queued back up again. I said, let the private sector, let the people who do inspections do that so it's much more affordable. We put in millions of dollars to clean up, uh, upgrade uh, wastewater treatment facilities on the Potomac, the Rappahannock, the James River. Um, and so the reality is, is what we want to do is achieve the same goal and, and achieve it in a more effective way. So um, in terms of being good, open for business in Virginia, uh, that's... Oh, yeah. And we had prompt permitting as well. You also started plans for now the Silver Line Metro to Dallas Airport. Yeah. There are a lot of different comparisons between Virginia and Maryland, particularly within Northern Virginia and, Southern, and, and the D.C. metro area counties of Maryland. Many uh, individuals will say that Virginia is very business friendly, uh, and yet... In Fairfax County, you'll see that they raise the same amount of money every year from a similar sized population as Montgomery County. So the tax revenues are comparable for the two populations. How do you explain that Virginia can be such a better environment for business than Montgomery County, or at least there's that perception, and at the same time that they're not raising less revenue through taxes? Well, it shows if you're more... Uh First of all, whatever your research is, I want to get it because I'm actually speaking. I just accepted <laughs> to speak at the Montgomery County, Maryland <laughs> annual Lincoln Day dinner uh, in April. Uh, Montgomery County is similar to Fairfax in a lot of different ways. It's kind of like uh, the western half of Fairfax and Loudoun County put together. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of rural area in the far western part. 
the reason Virginia beats Maryland, uh, regardless of these two counties, is first of all, Virginia has a freedom to work law, right to work laws, where men and women are not forced to join a union as a condition of work. And whether a business is unionized or not, they have much better labor union, man, labor management uh, relations and right to work laws. We're the furthest state north on the eastern seaboard with the right to work law, and that is a great selling point uh, for Virginia. Our taxes are generally less than they are in Maryland. Uh, the permitting, at least when I was governor, was, was faster. Uh, Maryland, uh, has, has a, a, a different viewpoint on a lot of uh, some issues than, than we do. But as far as every, every ranking of states and, and growth in states and losing population, I mean, one of the reasons Governor Hogan got elected was the, the veracity of his statement that people were looking to leave Maryland. And, uh, and so Maryland was not hard to compete against as far as economic development. Tennessee was the Carolinas, Georgia, they were, they were the competition. But Maryland, um, Maryland's biggest strength is that they have the National Institutes of Health. They have beautiful, you know, people love waterfront property, so they have plenty of that with the, with the bay. Um, and, it's, so it's, and it's a good centralized location, but they're not, I know Governor Hogan and, and um, Mike Gill, his Secretary of Commerce, are doing everything they can, and I think they are making Maryland more competitive. But that right to work law really does matter. So, George, as we approach the end of this podcast episode, I'd like to ask you a final uh, two-part question couched in some context. Uh, so, in case our listeners don't know, now Congressman Don Beyer used to be a lieutenant governor mm -hmm. under you when you were governor. Now, you're a Republican and he's a Democrat. Now, take that piece of information, take another piece of information. While you were serving as a United States senator in 2001... You witnessed September 11th attacks, and you saw that for about a year, as you said, the country was unified. The Senate had a different feel in it after the September 11th attacks. So my final question is about your motivations and your legacy. I'd like you to speak to the people of Virginia within the context that it is possible to have unity. It is possible to work with somebody of an opposing philosophy, right? Because Don was a Democratic lieutenant governor. Would you speak to Virginia about why you've dedicated your life to public service and what the impact and legacy that is and what it means for Virginians? Well, Jordan, you, you make some really good observations. The country was all unified after 9-11 and that was a terrible attack. Don Byer was lieutenant governor in a different party more importantly, though, the legislature was dominated and the majority were Democrats. So any of these initiatives that we've talked about, these reforms that we got through that are monumental on the welfare reform, uh, the education standards, the uh, accountability in schools, the, any sort of funding, budgetary matters, the, the doubling of enterprise zones, all of these things, the abolition of parole and truth and sentencing, juvenile justice. All of these had to be done on a bipartisan basis. The lesson is, is candidates running for office need to be running for office to reform, change, or improve something, not just to sit and warm a seat. And if the people give you the honor and responsibility of serving, keep your promises. And you're going to have to work with people in the other party. And it makes it much stronger that you have that bipartisan support. Since I've left office, and you only have one term in Virginia, 
governors, Democrat and Republican, Democrat and Republican majority legislatures, they still have accountability in the schools. Uh, no one has said, gosh, let's release criminals early. We have the lowest repeat offender rate, recidivist rate in the country. We have the third lowest violent crime rate in the country. So no one's saying, hey, let's let criminals out after a quarter of their sentence to rape someone again. And so a lot of the, the enterprise zones, I'd love it when Governor McAuliffe would have a announcement in the enterprise zones because we created 50 of them. He says, well, since 1995, there's been over a billion dollars and 40,000 jobs created in these enterprise zones. He doesn't say who did it in 1995. <laughs> but the point is, is those legacies endure and they have made Virginia more competitive and a better place for people to live, learn, work and to raise their families. And um, that's the legacy, I think, the education reforms, the competitiveness and economic development, safer communities, uh, all of those matter a lot and it's improved people's lives and a lot of those seeds that we planted decades ago are, are still uh, not only have grown, but are, are bearing fruit. And that has been George Allen, former governor of Virginia, former United States senator, congressman, and state delegate, who approaches his uh, legacy in politics through sports metaphors by enunciating his four Fs of family, faith, freedom, and football. He speaks about a career in public service very much in line with the philosophies of Thomas Jefferson and Ronald Reagan. He speaks of being wise and frugal and how being running a government in such a way leads to more freedom for everyone. He speaks about creating competition both on the sports field and also in the political arena and in the business arena and that by now uh, providing removing obstacles for individuals to succeed he's able to create a better environment that raises all boats and helps all Virginians. George I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Jordan you're outstanding and you have a great future. Uh, not only have a good voice you have really have a good mind and you th synthesize things really well. So I look forward to seeing your success and your life ahead. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.